once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Faith can be hard. At times, it seems our world is crashing around us. Rescue won't come in time, and we wonder where God went. But for those in Christ, rescue arrived long before the trouble began. Teaching team member Jeff Norris finishes the series Habakkuk, Hard Thoughts of God, with this message entitled Faith's Fruit, which covers Habakkuk chapter 3. For more information, and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. must I call for help before you listen, before you save us from violence? Why, why do you make me see such trouble? How can you stand to look on such wrongdoing? And, and violence is all around me. There is no justice. Evil people get the better of the righteous. Then the Lord said to his people, keep watching the nations around you and you will be astonished at what you see. I'm going to do something that you will not believe when you hear about it. I am bringing the Babylonians to power. Those fierce, restless people. They spread fear and terror, and in their pride they are a law unto themselves. Their captives are as numerous as grains of sand. No fortress can stop them. Lord, from the very beginning, you are God, my God, and we shall not die. You have chosen the Babylonians and made them strong so they can punish us? How can you stand those evil men? How can you treat us like fish? The Babylonians catch people like they were fish and they worship the nets that they catch them in. Are you going to let this go on and on and on? Are you going to let them kill us as if we're nothing but fish? I will climb my watchtower and I will wait to see what God will tell me and what answer he will give to my complaint. And the Lord gave me this answer. Write down clearly what I reveal to you. It is not yet time for it to come true. But the time, time is, is coming quickly, and what I show you will come true. It may seem slow in coming, but wait for it. It will certainly take place. And this is the message. Those who are evil will not survive, but those who are righteous We'll live by faith. 
You, Babylon, have looted many nations. All who are left will loot you. Judgment is coming, coming to those who build a city with bloodshed. The time is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, but you are doomed. The Lord will make you drink from your own cup of punishment, and your honor will be turned to disgrace. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in his presence. Lord, I have heard of what you have done, and I am filled with awe. Now, do again in our times the great deeds you used to do. Be merciful even when you are angry. You struck down the leader of the wicked and completely destroyed his followers. I hear all this and my body goes limp and my feet stumble beneath me. <laughs> I will quietly wait for the time when God will punish those who attack us. Even though the fig trees have no fruit and no grapes grow on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no grain, even though the sheep all die and there's no cattle in the stalls, I will still be joyful and glad because the sovereign Lord is my savior. The sovereign God gives me strength. And that's the story of Habakkuk. And uh, let me pray before we jump into where God has us this morning. Father, we thank you for um, this book we thank you where you have had us the last three weeks, where you will lead us today into this last chapter of this book. And Father, we thank you for the truth that it contains, even some of it hard and difficult to, for us and our finite minds to wrap our minds around and our hearts around. But God, would you, would you cause the words on this, on this page, the pages of our Bible, to come to life? Would you give us understanding and you warm our hearts towards you, that we may leave this place having a grander vision of who you are, more in love with who you are, more thankful for your faithfulness than we've ever been. So Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come, to use me as your mouthpiece and to, to take our hearts and shape them as you would have, uh, have your way and, and Lord, make us into your image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thankful for Kurt Cloninger and his uh, great talent of acting and re rehearsing for us um, the whole book of Habakkuk, really, is what he just did there. And if you haven't been with us, we've been, we've been walking through this obscure, what may feel to us to be an obscure book in the Bible. Maybe you've read it before and you've tried to figure out exactly what this is talking about and 
and you say, I don't know, I'll go to a book that's easier to read. Maybe you're like one of the few honest ones that have come to us and have admitted, I didn't even realize this was a book in the Bible. Uh, wherever you are on the spectrum, maybe you understood it and you've, you've been, Habakkuk's been one of your favorite books in your lifetime. Wherever you are, uh, we've been in this book and God has been blessing us as we've understood more and more who he is through this little book in the back of your Old Testament. Before I go into where we're headed today, let me set us up by uh, sharing with you a question that I ponder often. And I say often, there's probably seasons where I think about it more often than, than, than not, but uh, fairly periodically, I, I think about this question. If I were to lose it all, how would I respond? If I were to lose my health, receive a grim diagnosis and be told that my time is short, how would, how would I respond? If I were to lose my family, my marriage, a child or children, how would I respond? If I were to lose a job that I coveted and loved, and with that, my possessions and the money that God had given me over the years, and if I lost all those material things, how would I respond? Perhaps even deeper than that, things that strike even more to the core of who we are, what, what if I lost my reputation? What if I lost my dignity, my security? How, how would I respond if I lost it all? I wanna tell you the story about a man named Saran Stacy. Saran Stacy is a guy that I grew up uh, really in, in football terms idolizing. I grew up in the state of Alabama. My dad played football at Alabama. I, I ended up going to Alabama, so I had no choice. Please don't hate me for, for that. But, um, but Saran Stacy was a running back for Alabama in the late 80s and early 90s. And I can remember looking up to this player so much. He was, such, he was a running back, so great uh, athlete. And he was the first draft of the, of the uh, Philadelphia Eagles uh, first round draft pick, and then he, he blew out his knee and uh, really didn't have an NFL career because of that. But, but I'm not telling you about Saran because of anything he had to do with him in football. Saran Stacy was a Christ follower, but yet on the night of, September, of uh, November 19th, 2017, his, his life completely took a jagged turn in an unexpected way. He was driving with his wife, Ellen, and their five kids uh, on a pretty desolate four-lane highway in South Alabama after having left a dinner with their friends, family friends. Fairly late in the evening, kids are probably asleep in the car. And they're going up this four-lane highway, they've gotten in the left-hand turn lane, and they're looking to turn left across the other two lanes, waiting at a red light. The green light comes and he's looking naturally to the two lanes across to make sure there's no oncoming traffic as he has a yield green light. What he doesn't know is that there's a 29-year-old man on a suicide mission because he's dying of AIDS, going 95 miles an hour in the wrong direction up those two lanes. And as Saran turns left with his family in tow, this man hits them dead on, T-bones them. Saran's wife and four of his five children are killed upon impact. 
Saran and his one surviving daughter are in the ICU for several weeks to come. And can you imagine when he woke up being told that in large part his family was no more? But here's the thing. Saran now travels the country speaking and sharing about the sovereign goodness of God. But it took him a while to get there. He tells a story of not long after he had been home from the hospital and he was getting back, trying to get back into a routine of life and he had taken, taken his one surviving daughter to school that morning that he went back home and he got an aluminum bat and he locked himself in his house. And he said he had it out with God. And after destroying much of his home from the inside out, he said, I had it out with God and God won. And then he said that God's grace has proven sufficient for me. Just yesterday, my wife, I didn't even share this in the nine o'clock service because I had not seen it yet, but just a minute ago, Rachel uh, showed this to me. Um, yesterday was graduation day at the University of Alabama and Saran Stacey posted this on Facebook. He said, today was an incredible day. 27 years ago, I left the University of Alabama without a degree. My dad, Ellis, my mother, Marie, and my first wife, Ellen, always pushed me to go back and get it. Ellen started the process and told me repeatedly, Saran, you're going to graduate. As many of you know, I lost Ellen and my four children, and four of my children in 2007. That night, a piece of me died along with them, but God was not finished with me. Through the resurrection power of Jesus, along with many prayers, I started a new journey, and a ministry was birthed. He goes on to say towards the end, he said, there are so many that have encouraged, motivated, and helped me over the last 10 years. Thank you. I would not have made it this far without your help. I'm 49 years old, and my story is still being written, about, uh, st still being written out by God Almighty. You may be dealing with some deep hurt, deep hurt and struggling. My words to you are God is still writing your story. It's not over. Don't dare give up. Mark 9, 23. Here's a man who was devastated by something that God had ordained in his life that I'm sure for him, without question, seemed to be cruel and at the very least confusing. How does Saran Stacy get to a point where he can speak about the sovereign goodness of God in that tragedy? How can he say that he has hope in this Jesus how can Habakkuk say at the end of this letter, this book that we're gonna to read today, what he says about trusting God even in the midst of what God has told him he's gonna do, the devastation that he's gonna bring? Let's be honest. Our biggest fear, if we're in the deepest pits of our anxiety, our deepest fear, if we were willing to articulate it, is that God's gonna do something to us like he did to Saran. That he's going, my, my deepest fear, I won't even put this on you. One of my deepest fears is that he is going to take from me something that I most cherish. And here's the hardest part of that. Here's the hardest part of that fear. Sometimes he does. Where's our hope? And that when we begin to realize God does things sometimes that we just go, what, how, why? And what we're gonna see in this text in chapter three of Habakkuk is that, that our hope really relies on the truth that we are to live by faith. 
But let me be more specific. What we'll see in this chapter is not just that we live by faith, but that we live by faith on two key truths. And the truths are this, that the Lord has come and that he will come again. Now you may hear that and you go, that's all you got for me? That's, that's our hope? My hope and prayer is that by the end of our time together today, you will say amen, yes, hallelujah, he has come and he will come again and that is more than enough for me to hang my hat on for hope because that's ultimately wonderful, wonderful news. So turn to Habakkuk chapter three. It'll be, it's printed in your bulletins if you don't have your Bible and it'll be on the screen as well. If you do have your Bible, go towards the back of your Old Testament among all those little pages that we never read and all those names that we don't know how to pronounce. As you turn there, let me just say this, a little caveat, I'm, I'm really excited. I think, uh, I think I have started a new movement. Time will tell, but uh, two weeks ago I gave a hard challenge to young families that we needed to redeem the name of Habakkuk. Start naming our kids Habakkuk. We got all these Old Testament names that we use we name our kids Daniel and Ezekiel and Micah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk has been left in the dust and that's not fair. <laughs> so I've had two couples tell me, Jeff, if we have a son, we'll name him Habakkuk. And I said, yes, <laughs> the movement has started. Caleb was one of those families, right? <laughs> no? Oh, sorry. I thought I could get him to say yes on the spot. So many great nicknames that could come from Habakkuk, Habs. That's pretty much all I can think of. Um, but it's a great name, redeem it. All right. So here we are in the book of Habakkuk. Let me retrace for you a little bit about where we've been. So Habakkuk 1 and 2, here's the story. This is written in about 640 B.C. And it's written to the southern tribes of Israel called Judah. Now what's happened about 100 years previous to this, not quite 100 years, but in 722 BC, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, because of their long, long apostasy and idolatry, God had warned them over and over again through the prophets that they would be decimated, that they would be judged before their sin and their disobedience and their unrepentance. And they didn't, they didn't turn to God. And so what happened is in 722, God raises up the nation of Assyria to come in and ransack Israel, disperse them and decimate them. And so the, the 10 northern tribes are no more. All that's left are the two southern tribes called Judah. And Habakkuk is prophesying to these two southern tribes, hey guys, we saw what happened to our, two, to our 10 northern tribes, to our brother, if you will. Uh, we've got to repent, but... That's not happening. They've not been listening to the prophets before Habakkuk. And Habakkuk cries out at the beginning of this letter. He says, he says, how long, O Lord? How much longer will you be silent and will you allow evil to be in the camp, if you will, of Judah? And God responds with an answer that was much worse than his silence. He said, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna raise up the Chaldeans who will become the Babylonians and these evil, gross, pagan God-hating people will be the very means of my judgment upon your idolatry. Habakkuk responds and he says, God, I don't understand. You saw in the video with Kurt. I, I just, I don't get the Babylonians. I mean, yes, there's things that we're doing that aren't right, but these men are evil. These people are evil. You're gonna allow that evil to be the very judgment of, of you? I just, but, but what about judgment for them? God responds 
And he says, he says, first, and this is the crux of the entire book, the verse of the entire book that is the main idea, which is Habakkuk 2.4 that says, the, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, trust me. Trust me, have faith in me and what I'm doing. And there will be judgment, not just on you, on Judah, but there will also be judgment on Babylon. It will come in due time. So he spends the rest of chapter two pronouncing, as Caleb led through us last week, the rest of chapter two pronouncing these five woes upon Babylon of how they will receive the just wrath of God for their sin as well. And so here we are, beginning of chapter three, and this is Habakkuk's final reply to God. And it says in verse one of chapter three, it says this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shagayanoth. Don't name your kids that one. Um, <laughs> We actually don't know what that term means. Uh, that's probably a musical term because this word here for prayer in verse one points to a hymn. It's a liturgical prayer that is to be rehearsed and sung in the worship of Judah. When they're in the worship place, they are to sing this. Now, as we read through chapter three, I want you to kind of think about the fact that they would have been singing this, which is crazy. We sing in Christ alone and oceans and we go, that's got a great melody and it rhymes. I don't think this had a melody very much and rhymed. It was, it was a song that was harsh, but ultimately awesome as it pointed to the majesty and the grandeur of God and his plans for his people. So it says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagayanoth, verse two, here's the first thing I want you to get today. I'm gonna give you three things to take from this passage. The first one is this, Habakkuk petitions the Lord in fear, in great fear. Look at verse two, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. Circle the word report right next to it. Right down next to it, 2, 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's re remembering back to when he stood up on the tower and he said, I'm gonna wait and see what the report is, God, or what you say to me in response to my complaint. So he's heard that. And then he says, I've also heard of your work. Circle the word work and right next to it, 1, 5. Chapter one, verse five, if you go back there, it says this, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am, here it is, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, if we extrapolate that verse by itself, that sounds like a wonderful verse that we put on our refrigerator that says, God's gonna do a great work. When we read it in context and realize he's saying, I'm gonna bring Babylon to destroy you, you take it off your refrigerator. <laughs> you say, I don't think I'm gonna do that one. So Habakkuk has heard the report and the work of the Lord. And look what he says. He says, and oh Lord, do I fear? I'm afraid, God, because what you're saying is terrifying. And so out of his fear, he petitions the Lord with three things. Right there in verse two. The first one is this. In the midst of the years, revive it. Now here's what he's saying. In the midst of the years, meaning most likely what he's referring to is he's saying, okay, you're gonna judge us through Babylon and then you're gonna judge Babylon. And whatever the years that that takes is, God, you haven't given me a time frame, but in the midst of those years, revive us. But really a better translation for the, for the term revive us or revive it is make him alive. So it would read, in the midst of the years, make him alive. Now who's him? Remember, I said the core verse, the, the major verse of this entire book is, is 2.4, Habakkuk 2.4, and it says, and the righteous shall live by his 
faith. He's tapping back into that. He's saying, okay, God, those of us who are righteous by faith, not because of what we've done, but because we trust you. For those of us who are faithful to you, that, that have faith in you, God, regardless of whether we understand or not, would you, would you revive us? Would you give us life? in the midst of these years coming. And then he says again, in the midst of the years, petition two, make it known, or a better translation would say, make him understand, meaning the, the one who is faithful. Would you give him, would you be so gracious to give understanding? Would you give us life? Would you, would you revive us? And would you give us understanding of your ways? And then he says, third petition, he says, and, and God, in wrath, in your just wrath against sin, your right anger, your proper anger against sin, would you remember mercy? Would you be merciful as you rightly pour out judgment upon your sinful people? Second thing I want you to get where we'll spend the bulk of our time together and the time remaining is as we move into verse three is this. Habakkuk recalls the Lord's power and faithfulness. Habakkuk recalls the Lord's power and faithfulness. Let me show you. In verse three, he goes into these, for these next 12 verses, he goes into a, a recalling of who God is, his power among creation, his, his uh, in many ways, his inexplicable power. He tries to give words to it here, but it's only an inkling of the power of who God is. And then his faithfulness to his people as he remembers over the years and the centuries of how God has moved among his people. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when I said we've got to be able, when we don't understand what God's doing, the first thing that we do is we rehearse what we know, what we know to be true about God. That's what he's doing here again. And so in verse three, he said, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. I won't go into detail, but he's retracing the steps that he led the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land as these markers, Mount, Taran, uh, Mount Paran and, and Taman are the ones where these are the markers of journey that he took them from the south out of Egypt around the east into Edom through into the promised land through Moses and Joshua. So he's recalling the faithfulness of the Lord. Verse four, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. This is an allusion back to Mount Sinai. If you're, if you're familiar with the scriptures in Exodus 20, God is leading them out of the promised land. They're at Mount Sinai and he leads Moses up on top of the mount to give him the 10 commandments. And it's described as this, this place where lightning is flashing and dark clouds are around the top of the mountain. And God has to veil his power, his glory from Moses in the cleft of the rock so that Moses can see the backside of God and still live. And so he's referring back to he was faithful to us as he led us out of Slavery, and he led us through the wilderness and as he gave us the Ten Commandments. And then he gets into language about how powerful God is among his creation. That wherever he goes, pestilence follows, which sounds terrifying, but it's just a simple way to say God is so far beyond us. As you read some of those verses, what you need to be thinking, what I need to be thinking as we read them, even if we can't fully understand what he's saying, is that he's God and I'm not. And his power is so far beyond me, I will never fathom it. In fact, in all of eternity, I will be in awe of it, in his presence. 
Verse seven, he says, I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. What he's referring to there is that Kushan and Midian were two of the first oppressors of Israel that we read about in the book of Judges. They've now come into the promised land and these two people, these two nations, have a, kingdoms have attacked them and now God is getting judgment upon them and he's saying God is faithful. Skip down to verse 11. He says, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. Joshua 10, 13 is what he's referring to there. He's hearkening back and remembering that as God was leading his people to victory over those within the promised land that they were to eradicate out, that at one point in time, he actually caused the sun and the moon to stand still so that the day would be long, so that the victory would be Israel's. He's recalling the power and the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He's remembering that everything that God has done in all of history, Everything that he has done has been A, for his glory, and B, for the redemptive purposes of his people, always. That some of the things that you read in this chapter as you read it on your own, you go, how is this for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed? But you begin to remember that God's character is such that he is a covenant-keeping God, faithful to his people, generation after generation after generation, so that even when it looks like he's bringing destruction upon them, and he does, he's still preserving them. And his purpose is redemption and salvation. Look at, ultimately, as you read through some of the language there, he pierced his own arrows, the heads of his warriors. You see the power and majesty of God. But look at verse 16. How Habakkuk responds. He hears all this, and he says, I hear and my body trembles. Now, this word trembles is used four times in this passage. In fact, the first time it's used is for the word wrath in verse two. When he asks God in your wrath, remember mercy. That word wrath, he uses three more times, but the other three times it's translated trembles. And the point is this, this word is a terrifying word. That as he sees what God is about to do, he is deeply troubled. And the reason I want you to see that, where he says, I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. I want you to get a picture of full body shaking, Habakkuk. Knees are trembling, lips are quivering because he sees what God's gonna do, but then look what he says. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In other words, he's saying, but I will wait because God, you promised and even though what you're about to do terrifies me, you promised, and I will trust you that you will be faithful in the end to do what you said you're gonna do. And then this is mind-blowing. What he says next is absolutely mind-blowing. Verses 17 through 19, Habakkuk praises the Lord in faith. You go, really? How? Like you've read what he's going to do here, but he's recalled the faithfulness of God and he's reminded himself, but God is faithful. He's faithful, he's faithful, and he's remembered that he has come before. God has come. And he's turning his heart towards, because he's come before, he will come again. And just as he's been faithful to his people in the past, he will continue to be that way. 
because his character will not allow him to do otherwise. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What he's doing here is he's walking through progressively the essentials of life for the Israelite. From least essential, although essential, to most essential. And he's saying, even if all that is lost, and listen, it's not, it's not from this tone of, well, even if it happens, it's Habakkuk knows something. He knows that it will happen. When this is all lost, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The language here is similar to what we see in Psalm 73 where Asaph is writing this psalm and he's wrestled with God about how the wicked prosper. And he's trying to make sense of why God allows these evil people to prosper, why the people of God suffer. And he reminds himself, much like Habakkuk, he reminds himself of what's true of God. And he gets to this place where he says this, in verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 73, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing my heart desires on this earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, O oh God, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he says here, similarly, verse 19, verse 18 and 19, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He's my only hope. He's the only one who has proven faithful time and time and time again. And in his power and in his sovereignty, I don't always understand what he's doing, but I know I can trust him. You see, Habakkuk, we, we are, we're in a better place than Habakkuk was. You may say, well, I could never do what Habakkuk did here, but actually it was harder for him to do it than, than we do, because here's why. Habakkuk was able to look back and remind himself God has come. The Lord has come in the past, and he was able to see all the ways that he had been faithful to his people throughout the generations. And then he was able to say, just like he's come before, he will come again, and he will be faithful to his people, but he didn't know exactly how God was going to come again. But here we are on this side of the cross. And we don't get to look back just at the Old Testament narrative of how God was faithful to his people generation after generation. And we don't get to look back just in our own lives, which is powerful in and of itself, to see how God has been faithful to us year after year after year. But most importantly, most poignantly, most crucially, we get to look back at the most visceral, beautiful demonstration of love and glory and justice and that the world has ever known. Because God did come again after Habakkuk died. Many years after Habakkuk never saw how he would come. And he came in the form of a servant who came humbly and sacrificially and took upon the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, and the sin of God's people past, present, and future. And he hung on that cross and he bled to death and he said the just wrath of God, remember he prayed, in your wrath have mercy. God remembered mercy on the cross. 
And he answered the prayer of Habakkuk. And he poured out his wrath, not on you and me who deserve it, but on Jesus. So that in the moment of this life, when he's doing something that we don't understand, and we go, God, what are you up to? You're confusing me in so many ways, and this seems cruel. He says, look at the cross. Hang your hat on the hope that I have come. And I have paid for you in full everything you owed me. And all you have to do in response is you really don't do anything. You just trust me. The righteous shall live by faith. He has come. But then Jesus says this, I'll come again. And everything that you're experiencing in this finite world, in this sin-ridden place, in this sin-ridden body that doesn't make sense to you now, I will come and I will make all things new. I will make all sad things come untrue. And so you begin to see that the great hope for the Christian, even in the midst of confusion, is that we look at the cross and we look at the Christ who is to come again. And we say, I may not understand and I may be trembling in fear at what you're doing right now, God, but I trust you because you came and you will come again. Habakkuk knew his God. He knew his God. And he treasured God so much that even if it was all lost, he said, my heart will be satisfied and you, O oh God, you will be my strength. Is Jesus the king of such value to you and to me that if God and his sovereign ordinance took something away that we cherish, that we would be able to say, even though there are no cattle in the pen, even though you take away the olive tree, even though you take away what I've treasured here and what I think is essential, you are enough. And I will trust you because you satisfy me in ways that those things, as great as they are, never will. Listen, God is after us. He's after us in everything that he does. He's pursuing us with relentless abandon in ways that we may not understand now. But let me give you a little bit of a picture of what this might look like. One of my favorite movies of all time, probably in my top five, is Filled of Dreams. The movie was made in 1989. I can remember watching it as a 10-year-old in the theater with my dad. And I watched this movie many, many times before I realized that the movie is not about baseball. And you're going, Jeff, it is about baseball. I think you're confused. Yes, technically it's about baseball, but ultimately it points us to something that's really awesome in what it tells us about who our God is. Here's the story. Ray is the main character. He's played by Kevin Costner. And Kevin Costner uh, is, Ray is, is this Iowa corn farmer. He's married into this great corn-filled business. And he's got, he's got seemingly endless fields of corn in the middle of nowhere of Iowa. And this beautiful farmhouse that sits on this little ridge that overlooks it all. And his, own, his job, I shouldn't say only because it's a hard job, is to harvest, to grow, and harvest this corn and sell it and make a living off of it. One day he's in the field and he hears this voice whisper something that becomes the, 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 the line of the movie. If you build it, 
he will come. He's startled by the voice. He says, if you build it, he will come. What do you mean? What is it? Fast forward, long story short, he keeps hearing the voice. And then one day he sees a vision of a baseball field in his cornfield. And he realizes, I got to build a baseball field in my cornfield. And the locals think he's crazy because he's, he's mowing down his prophet. And he builds this field and nothing happens. He's followed the voice and nothing happens. And so he watches month after month as it sits there quietly. Then one day, his favorite player that he grew up loving and adoring as he read about him is Shoeless Joe Jackson from the 1929 White Sox. And he looks out on the field one day and Shoeless Joe Jackson is back from the dead on his field. I know that sounds weird, but it's a good movie, trust me. <laughs> and he thinks, this is it. This is why I had to, to build the field because now Shoeless Joe Jackson has come back from the dead and is playing baseball with his buddies on my field in Iowa. This is amazing. Then the voice starts up again and starts whispering more stuff to him. Things like go the distance, ease his pain. And he's so confused because he's going, wait, I thought this was finished and now you're leading me down this path and this path and the voice is continuing to take him on this journey literally around the country and the further that he's on the journey trying to find these people that the voice is telling him to find, the more confused he gets he winds back up at the ball field, and at the end of the movie, he thinks he's kind of figured out, okay, this was all so that we could get all these people back to this ball field to play ball for all of eternity. This, is, this must have been what it was about. And at the end of the movie, Shoeless Joe Jackson turns to him, and he says, Ray, if you build it, he will come. And he points to this man taking off his catcher's mask, and suddenly Ray's face Looks like he's seen a ghost, and quite literally he had, but he sees his dad, who was an old minor league baseball player that died when Ray was young, and he always wanted to know his dad. And as I was watching this movie recently, the movie ends with them talking and this dramatic music playing that always makes me cry, and them playing catch with each other that they never got to do as a kid, when he was a kid. And it dawned on me as I watched this again recently, this movie is not about baseball. This movie is about the great lengths to which a father will go to connect with his son. That this father will send him on crazy journeys, that the son has no idea why he's on this journey and confusing here and misunderstanding here, and I don't understand what this is all about, but I'm gonna follow anyway just to get him to a point where at the very end of the movie, there's intimacy between a father and his child. This is what God does throughout all of history with his people. He sends us on paths and journeys. He ordains things for us that we don't understand. Some of it seems cruel. Some of it looks to us like you are not for me, God. But at the end of the day, God is always doing everything that he does for his glory and for the redemptive purposes of his people to be with them in intimacy. There's great hope for the follower of God because he has come and he will come again. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are so unbelievably, even inexplicably faithful to your people. Father, we admit that we don't always get you. We don't always understand what you're up to. We don't even like what you do sometimes in the circumstances of our lives. But we see in scripture over and over again and we feel and 
and taste in our experience that you are trustworthy, you are faithful, and you are our source of hope because you have come, you have redeemed us, you have rescued us, you have loved us, you have proven faithful time and time again, and you will come again in, in glory. Father, I pray for those who are in the room who, even as we started this morning, as we talked about what would happen, how would I respond if I lost it all? Father, whatever that was that we're holding so tight to, that we cherish so much, that we, we say in the depths of our heart that if you took this, God, I would hate you forever. God, would you so work in us that we would actually begin to hold that with an open hand? And we would certainly pray and ask God that you wouldn't do that. But if you chose to, you are still God and I can still trust you. Would you do a God-sized work in our hearts that we can respond like Habakkuk and say, yet I will trust you. You are my strength and my portion forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.